0: Passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. Well, as uh, you're all aware, we've been working our way through the book of Colossians Uh, We we started this about a month ago, and we've been working our way through this small book that's all about Jesus, as our sermon title, uh, or our series title is, All About Jesus. It's all about who Jesus is. It's all about what Jesus has done for us, Uh, but it's not just about what Jesus has done for us in salvation. See, Colossians doesn't just stop there. It also looks at how Jesus continues to work in us and work through us the rest of our lives. Remember, Paul's letter to the book of Colossians starts with him talking about fruit. He mentions that the the people in Colossae, the church in Colossae, is bearing much fruit in their city and in their neighborhoods. And his earnest prayer is that they will continue to bear much fruit, that they will continue to grow in maturity, and that the, the fruit of the gospel would be seen in increasing measure in their lives. And perhaps today you find yourself in a place where you, uh, you wonder how the, the gospel doesn't just save you, but affects you the rest of your life. How does the gospel change uh, how you approach your work? How does the gospel change the way that you interact with your family? How does the gospel change how you look at yourself? The book of Colossians is a great place to start when you ask those questions. Last week, Pastor Kurt led us through a beautiful hymn at the beginning of this book. Uh, chapter 1, verses 15 through 20 are all about the majesty of who Jesus is, the, the greatness of Jesus, his lordship over all of creation. Both the the seen and the unseen. And then verses 21 through 23 talk about those who are alienated from God, those who are hostile toward God, who are brought near to Him at great cost to Himself. I think many of us are unfortunately all too aware of what alienation means. We experience alienation in our own families. We could have siblings or Parents or children or extended family or former spouses that we find want nothing to do with us. We're alienated from those relationships that once meant so much to us. In many of these situations, we don't just have alienation, but there's downright hostility in between us. And that's the scenario that Paul describes here in Colossians chapter 1, that alienation, that hostility of mind. One of my favorite chapters of the Bible is Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2 talks about the the work of the gospel. The first 10 verses talk about the work of the gospel uh, on us individually, and then verses 11 through 22 talk about the work of the gospel corporately, or how does the, the gospel bring us together who are very different into a relationship. I want to just read a few verses here from chapter 2. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And he came near and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. I remember uh, six, seven years ago while I was in seminary, uh, we were, I had a class that was with the, the most difficult professor at the seminary, and we were looking at Pauline, the Pauline epistles. We were looking at all of Paul's letters, and we were preparing for our final exam. And this professor was notorious for asking us to uh, not only read the footnotes, but be able to answer questions like, what does the footnote on page 67 of this book say? And so needless to say, me and a number of other friends stayed up all night Uh, preparing for this examination. And as we were working our way through uh, the the study notes that we had, we knew that one of the passages that we were going to focus on in this exam was Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. And so we were running through all of the different Greek verbal forms in this this section. We were trying to wrestle through, okay, what does this mean? What does this mean? What does this mean? And at one point, uh, this is probably five or six hours into our studying, uh, someone asked me a question. About what did, what did the blood of Jesus accomplish? And I responded, for the Christian, the blood of Jesus accomplished, and then I finished the sentence based off of, of chapter 2. And as I said that, which was the right answer, I was struck, cut to the heart. Because I realized that for the last five hours, I had been answering all of these questions for the Christian, for the Christian, for the Christian. And I wasn't answering those questions for Jordan. For me, I was once alienated. I was once separated from Christ. That was a turning point in my time in seminary, and I just remember the next day as I went into the, um, into the exam, actually uh, working on this passage and, and just breaking down in the middle of, of the exam in Thanksgiving, um, they don't really like that in the midst of, of an exam, just so you know. <laughs> uh, but just just recognizing that that I was one who was once alienated from Christ. As Colossians says, one who was once hostile in mind to Christ. This morning, as we look at the rest of Colossians chapter 1, and we jump into uh, the beginning of Colossians 2, we see that the, the framework for all that Paul says is based on that. Paul is writing to a church, to the Colossian church, and saying, You were once alienated from Christ. You were once hostile in mind toward Christ. The alienation that we experience in our family relationships is nothing compared to the alienation of the not-so-cold war that experiences or that is experienced between God and humanity outside of Christ. And yet there's the cross where relationship is restored. the cross where hostility ceases. No wonder Paul responds in worship. No wonder Paul calls this the hope of the gospel. It's no wonder that Paul spends the rest of his life dedicated to the proclamation of this gospel. And here in these, in these uh, verses that we're going to be looking at this morning, Paul looks at this. He looks at the, the effect of reconciliation, the effect of rebirth in Christ for him, as well as for the church in Colossae. Paul explains his own ministry of proclamation, what God has called him to do, specifically a proclamation to the Gentiles. As we're going to see this morning, Paul is focused or greatly concerned with what he calls the great mystery of the gospel. Now, when we think of the word mystery, uh, well, Paul uses the word mystery here quite a bit in Colossians 1 and 2. He also uses it a lot in Ephesians. This word mystery, when we think of it, uh, it can take on a number of different meanings for us. Oftentimes, uh, a mystery is something that is just unexplainable. It's something that is unknowable. For example, it is a mystery to me how my daughter always wakes up right at the exact same time that I'm about to go to bed. It's unknowable. I'll never understand why Mara is so good at that as the same time I'm climbing into bed and Crystal's already asleep. I can suspect that it's Mara and Crystal working together, but I'll never know the answer. That's unknowable. It's a mystery. Other times, the word mystery can be used in in a different sense. It's it's something that's filled with tension. It's something that's filled with excitement or sometimes even fright. Fright. Television shows try to capitalize on this vein of mystery all the time. One only has to look at the run-of-the-mill uh, crime drama to see that this is the case. The, the show opens with a mystery. It's a, it's a whodunit case, and the team has to work together to solve the mystery. Sometimes there's fright. Sometimes there's tension. But at the end of the day, there's enough clues that people can figure out the mystery if they just try hard enough. Is that what Paul means when he talks about mystery here? Well, the Bible uses the word mystery in a relatively unique way, in a different way. Every time the Bible uses this word mystery, it refers to something that is unknowable until God reveals it. Something that's unknowable until God reveals it. So the word mystery is used in the book of Daniel, in the story of Nebuchadnezzar. When Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, and he doesn't know what the interpretation of this dream is. The book of Daniel describes it as a mystery, and it's only only once God reveals it to Daniel that the mystery is made known. Colossians chapter 1, we're going to read verse 26 here in a few seconds uh, with the rest of the passage, but Colossians chapter 1, verse 26, essentially sums up what the Bible means when it talks about mystery. It says this, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. And in this passage that we're going to look at this morning, Paul is all about this glorious mystery of the gospel. He tells us that the incredible plan of God to redeem and reconcile humanity was impossible for us to fully understand, impossible for us to know until he acted in Jesus, until he revealed his plan in Jesus we were to sum up what the glorious mystery of the gospel is, according to these verses, I think it really has two parts. The glorious mystery of the gospel is this. You who were once alienated from God now have full access to him because Jesus lives in you. You who were once alienated from God now have full access to God because Jesus lives in you. I might not sound all that mysterious, might not sound all uh, surprising or uh, all that uh, unknowable to you. It's something that if you've been around the church for any length of time, you likely understand that. You've heard that before. But to take the time and contemplate the two halves of this truth, of this mystery, that Christ is in you. And on the other side, that we have full access to, the, to God even though we were once alienated, can be life-changing for us. So this morning, we're going to take some time and do just that. We're going to be in in Colossians chapter 1, uh, starting in verse 24. We're going to go through Colossians 2, verse 5. And in this passage, Paul, as I've already mentioned, is describing his own ministry. And and this culminates with this description of the mystery of the gospel. If you have a Bible, I invite you to open up to uh, verse 24. Paul begins his description of his ministry using a very important word. He he refers to his ministry as a stewardship from God. In other words, Paul is given a stewardship. He's given a task that he's going to be held accountable uh, to God for. Please follow along, starting in verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. We already mentioned that Paul describes his ministry as a stewardship, but, but notice how he, he starts. He starts in a way that unlikely any of us would start. He, he starts by rejoicing in his suffering for the church. Remember, Paul is writing this letter from prison. This is a man who has frequently been beaten for the gospel. He has been betrayed on more than one occasion by those that he counted close friends claiming to be Christians. And he looks at all of his life, the times where he's been shipwrecked, the times where he has been burned by other Christians, the time where he has been left for dead. He looks at all of those things and he rejoices. He praises God for His suffering. What might be surprising to us as Paul talks about his his suffering and why he is suffering for the Colossians, Uh, it might be significant to us or surprising to us that Paul says uh, something that, that can be really controversial, really troubling for us. In verse 24, he says that, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. This doesn't sound like Paul at all. What does he mean by filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? Is Paul saying that Jesus' suffering was lacking? Well, let's first answer what this isn't, because that's a lot easier. It's pretty clear from the context of Colossians and the rest of Paul's writing, as well as the rest of the New Testament, the rest of the Bible, that Paul is not saying that Jesus's death was insufficient for salvation, and so Paul decided to help him out. That's not what this passage is saying. So what what does it mean? Well, to answer that, we have to first understand that there is a connection between our suffering... And Jesus is suffering. When you suffer right now, when you suffer for the gospel right now, the New Testament tells us that Jesus suffers alongside us. How could Paul ever forget Jesus' words to him on the road to Damascus when he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? There was this history of Jewish thought that really reached its peak at the time of Jesus's death and resurrection, there were these Jewish theologians who began to believe that the the Messiah, in order for the Messiah to return, the Messiah would first, or to establish his kingdom rather, he would have to suffer a set number of tribulations, a set number of afflictions. Otherwise, the Messiah couldn't actually establish his kingdom. It's likely that many Christians, after reading passages in Isaiah about the suffering servant, after seeing Jesus suffer on the cross before he was resurrected and his kingdom not yet established fully, it's likely that many uh, Christians began to think along the same set of, of thinking, that there was a set amount of suffering that the Messiah would have to endure before he came again. And the way that the Messiah suffered was through the church, alongside the church. So what Paul means when he says that he is filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions isn't that Jesus' death on the cross was insufficient for us. He's instead saying that Jesus participates in Paul's imprisonment, in Paul's beatings, because Paul is united with Christ Christ. And it is through this suffering that Jesus draws ever closer. Jesus comes ever closer to his return. Now, I'll be the first to admit that's probably more information than you wanted this morning. But think for a second on just how important that is for us. Think about how that changes the way that we look at our suffering. When you suffer for the gospel... Whether it is simply a snide comment, whether it is just an eye roll, whether it is something more extreme or significant than that, Christ suffers alongside you. Christ walks with you in the midst of your suffering. Christ might not stop the suffering, but he will bear you in the midst of it. And I think that's good news. For us this morning. And that's what Paul is looking at here as he begins to describe his ministry. So Paul continues to describe his calling from God, and as we mentioned earlier, he uses this language of stewardship. He he reminds us that he is held accountable by God for how he uses the, the resources, the talents, the energy that God has entrusted to him. And the same goes for us as well. Whether we're in vocational ministry or not, we will all be held accountable for what God has entrusted to us. How are we doing in our stewardship? Paul describes the primary thrust of his calling. He says at the end of, the verse, of verse 25 that his primary calling, the primary stewardship that God has given him, is to fully proclaim the word of God. Paul looks back over decades of ministry, near the end of his life, As he looks at all of it, he says that the most important thing in his ministry is the proclamation of the Word of God. It is a commitment to the Word of God, being devoted to the Word of God. And so it is today as well. The most important thing uh, that the church can do, that the pastor can do, is to make known fully the Word of God. That doesn't mean that the Word of God operates in a vacuum. Proclamation that doesn't lead to action, that doesn't lead to faith, that doesn't lead to heart change, isn't really proclamation. But if proclamation is lacking or sacrificed or limited in ministry, then the church will be limited as well. You'll notice that Paul mentions not just making known the Word of God, but he says making known fully the Word of God. What does Paul have in mind here when he says this? We're going to talk about this here in a few moments, but he's referring specifically to the mystery of the gospel. We must not forget the mystery of the gospel when we proclaim the word of God. But before we look at those verses, we're going to come back to them here because they're the heart of Paul's message. I just want us to to jump ahead and to look at the rest of everything that Paul says. Paul continues in verse 29 and then through chapter 2, describing his own ministry. If the, the first few verses were talking about Paul's ministry in general, just how he has been given a stewardship of the gospel for the church, these verses focus on Paul's stewardship for the church in Colossae. This church that he has never met before. What is God's calling on Paul's life for these people that he has never met before? Let's continue in verse 29. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laod Asia and for all those who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged As I began this morning, I mentioned that Paul describes his ministry as a struggle. It's here in these verses where Paul describes a struggle. But the word struggle, when Paul uses it, is not the same thing that we often think of when we think of struggle. The word struggle here actually originates in the Olympic Games of ancient Greece. It was something where the, the The athletes who would participate would struggle and compete against one another, struggling in races and in wrestling, all for victory. This struggle for the Olympians encapsulated all of life. Now, not to the same degree as Olympians today, but in some sense, the struggle included every single aspect of the ancient Olympians. It included competitions, preparation for those competitions, training for those in their eating and in their sleeping. No part of their life was left out in the struggle of the Olympic Games. For the ancient Olympians, the glory was not for themselves, but the glory was for the community that they represented And so they gave all that they had that they could bring honor to those that they represented. Paul describes his own ministry in a similar way. He describes his ministry as a struggle that encapsulates all of life. His greatest and most earnest desire is to see that all of the church is growing in maturity. Bearing the fruit of the gospel. That's how Paul begins his letter here in Colossians chapter 1. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed has the whole world and is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Here at the end uh, or at the beginning of, of chapter two, Paul lists three goals of his struggle on behalf of the Colossians. First, he prays that the Colossians would be encouraged. Verse two, Paul describes his struggle so that the Colossians would be encouraged. It is so easy for us to get discouraged when life doesn't go our way. When life doesn't go according to our plan, when people hurt us, it is so easy to get discouraged and frustrated when we don't see tangible progress and spiritual growth the way that we would like to see in our lives, when we continue to wrestle through and face the same old sin over and over. And Paul says, I want you to be encouraged, be encouraged by the mystery the gospel. Next, Paul prays that the Colossians will be knit together in love, also in verse 2. As we're soon going to see, the church in Colossae was made up of both Gentiles and Jews. It would have been unheard of in that day and age for these two groups to dwell together as brothers and sisters, and yet that's exactly what the gospel declared, and that's what Paul prayed for. Third, Paul also struggles and prays for the Colossians to find full assurance and meaning in Christ alone. The meaning of your life should be in Christ alone. Remember the context of Colossians. Paul is writing to a church that is surrounded by a culture that says, Jesus is good, but Jesus and something else is better. There is this constant temptation to turn their eyes away from Jesus alone, to look for meaning and peace and significance, not just from Jesus, but Jesus and something else. Jesus and someone else. Notice here, Paul intentionally uses the word wisdom and knowledge, in verse 3, because the, the culture of that day talked about wisdom and knowledge as a place where you could find meaning and significance in a way that Jesus would not provide for you. If you take a step back, it sounds, awfully light, uh, it sounds an awful lot like today. Jesus isn't offensive to our culture. What is offensive to our culture is Jesus' declaration that he is Lord, not just of our lives, but over all of our lives. That's what our culture finds offensive. Why can't? we follow Jesus and still spend our money the exact way that we want to all on ourselves? Why can't we have Jesus and be viciously mean to other people? Why can't we have Jesus but expect everyone else to serve us rather than serving them? Why can't we have Jesus but continue to stick to our old prejudices and dislike of those who are different from us? It's in the face of all this that Paul struggles with all his might that the Colossians would overcome, that they would not look to Jesus and the mirror, that they would not look to Jesus and the bank account, that they would not look to Jesus and their relationships as the source of, our, of their identity, but instead that they would look to Jesus alone. And that's what verses 26 through 28 describe when they talk about this mystery of the gospel. Paul tells the church in Colossae that the beauty of the gospel is something that has been hidden for ages, but now has been revealed to the church. And what does he say? What is the mystery of the gospel? It's Christ in you. Christ in you. Not just Christ with you, not just Christ for you, not just Christ supporting you, not just Christ beside you, Christ with you, Christ in you. The glorious and beautiful truth that is revealed to us in the gospel is not just that God has made for us a way to dwell with him, but that Jesus actually dwells within us now. Consider briefly just the two halves of this glorious mystery today. First, notice that Christ in you means that you are united with your Messiah. You are in union with Christ, that you are united with your Messiah. As we've already mentioned, the astounding mystery of the gospel is not just that Jesus can save you, but that Jesus dwells within you. You might be saying, well, what does that mean? What does it mean that Christ is in you? What does this mystery actually mean? Well, consider a few other passages where Paul talks about Christ in you and what they reveal to us about the significance of this. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Christ in, me, in you means that your old life is gone. Jesus now reigns in your body because Christ dwells in you. You have been set free from slavery to sin. Even more significantly, Paul tells us that is, if Christ is in you, it is he who empowers you to live life by faith, to bring glory to God, to bring honor to God, and serving God is no longer a burden, that no one can carry, but is now a joy. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Yet when we're set free from the old self, that doesn't mean that the battle is over. For how else could we interpret uh, the victory of Galatians 2 alongside Paul's struggle in Romans chapter 7? So it is no longer I who do it, but the sin That dwells within me. Christ in you means that your life is a spiritual battlefield. Just like Paul, we live in the already not yet of God's kingdom. Christ does indeed dwell in us, He does indeed defeat our sin, He does indeed free us from slavery, He gives us victory over sin. Christ is indeed in us, and yet we still struggle. With sin, I a few moments ago mentioned that Christ in you. The significance of that is that you no longer serve God as a burden, but now as a delight. And I would I would venture a guess that even as I said that, some of you thought to yourself, "Well, sometimes, sometimes serving Christ is a delight, and sometimes serving myself." as a delight as well. The reality of Christ in you is that your life is now a spiritual battle between your sin and Christ. And here's the good news. Though there is a battle waging in you, though they are diametrically opposed to one another, they are not equals. First John tells us that he who is in us is greater than the one who is in the world. Victory is assured for those whom Christ dwells in. Consider the other, uh, another significance of this idea of Christ in you. This comes from 1 uh, first, uh, first Corinthians chapter 6. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord, and will also raise up us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Here in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul is reminding the church in Corinth that Christ in them, and because we are in Christ, that means our bodies actually belong to him. What we put before our eyes, we actually put before Christ's eyes. What we vocalize with our own lips, we actually put on the lips of our Messiah. Where our feet go, we bring Christ's feet with us. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 tells us that it is unthinkable to commit fornication because believers are united with Christ. Do you live in conscious recognition that your body And all that you do with it belongs to Christ. One final implication of Christ in you. Colossians chapter 3. We'll get to this here in a few weeks. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian and Scythian, slave or free. But Christ is all and in all. If Christ is in you, and if that is true, not just for you, but for every other Christian, then how you treat other Christians is a depiction of how you treat Christ. How you treat those who are in fellowship with you, or those who are not in fellowship with you, and yet who are Christians, reflects on how you treat Christ. Just like you, other Christians are temples of God. Just like you, other Christians are holy and set apart for the Lord. Distinctions based, and favoritisms based on race, class, education, employment, wealth, and on and on. All of those disappear. Or at least they should in the church. How different our actions are, our speech is, our thoughts are, our relationships will be when we realize this, that Christ in you means that you and every other Christian are united in your Messiah. That's why at the beginning of chapter two, Paul prays that the church would be knit together in love. And it's with that in mind, this alienation, this distinction between the Jews and the Gentiles that we get to the second part of this mystery. It's this, Christ in you is even more glorious if you are a Gentile. Christ in you is even more glorious if you are a Gentile. If you are not a Jew, if, you, if you're um, not Jewish, and as I would guess, most of us here are not, the mystery of the gospel takes on so much more significance. Last Sunday, after uh, church, Crystal and I were eating at home, and we, uh, she brought up um, a heartbreaking story of a friend of ours um, Some dear friends of ours who had experienced last weekend um, some classless and and an awful example of racism here in in northwest Iowa. As we were talking about that, that led to um, a deep discussion on the difficult topic of race. One that all of us are very aware of in today's cultural climate. Seems like it's everywhere. We live in a very divided uh, society uh, along many lines, and, and one of those has to do with the topic of race. It's an unbelievably complex topic, one that oftentimes breeds, trust, uh, di- uh, breeds distrust and dislike whenever it's brought up. And as we were talking about this, Crystal and I were, were began, began to think about it through the lens of Colossians. We began to think about it through the lens of this great divide between the Jews and the Gentiles before Christ. and We began to to wrestle with whether this division that we oftentimes see today, if that's the same as it was back then or if it was different. You see, the Jews and the Gentiles did not like each other. They did not trust one another. Jews oftentimes referred to uh, Gentiles as ta ethne. Which uh, means the nations. It doesn't seem all that bad to us, but this actually had kind of a racial slur connotation to us. To it, the Jews would refer to the Gentiles as ta ethne, those who were not a part of God's chosen people. Gentiles would return the favor; Uh, they would mock the Jewish worship of Yahweh alone. They would exclude them from society, oftentimes oppress them throughout history. And while there were exceptions, for the most part, Jews wouldn't let Gentiles into their congregations, and the Gentiles didn't really care. It's in this context where it is unthinkable, unheard of, impossible to believe that these words for Gentiles Christ in you, the hope of glory. Would actually come true. A passage we read in Ephesians this morning that I talked about was so powerful to me. One of the reasons why it's so powerful to me is because I am a Gentile. Paul is talking about the great divide between the Jews and the Gentiles that Christ broke down, calls it a dividing wall of hostility that he broke down for those Gentiles who were alienated far from God and what he did for us. The great mystery of the gospel. Consider those verses again. Remember that you, referring to Gentiles, were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off, you Gentiles, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off, Gentiles, and peace to those who are near, the Jews. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but now you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. The great, beautiful, wonderful mystery of the gospel, the glorious mystery of the gospel revealed to us in Christ is that God has made a way not just for Jews to find salvation, but also for Gentiles as well for people from every tribe and every tongue. That's why here in verse 27, Paul says, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. Christ in you is not just for the Jews. Christ in you is for Gentiles like you and me. And perhaps just as significant, Christ in you is for Gentiles who are not like you and me. Christ in you, the hope of glory. So what does all this mean for us today? Remember, the glorious mystery is this. You who are once alienated from God have full access to him because Christ lives in you. You and others like you, you and others not like you, have full access to God because Christ is in you, the hope of glory. What would it mean for us to live out our union with Christ this week? For some of us, it would mean that this is an issue of identity. We need to remind ourselves that the most important thing about us is not our vocation, it's not our social status or how many friends we have, but instead it is these words, Christ in you, the hope of glory. For still, others of us, it, is what, uh, it confronts what, what we spend our lives for. How do we use our lives? Paul talks about this stewardship that he has been given, and each of us has been given as well. Are we burning up all of our energy on things that leave us unable to give in areas where God is calling us to give energy? Things like our family? Things like the lost? to the church, to one another. And still for others, this confronts what we subject our bodies to. What do we put before our eyes? What thoughts do we dwell upon? What consumes our minds? Are there things that Christ would dwell upon? And finally, this union with Christ reminds us that Christ is not just in you, but that Christ is in every other Christian as well. How you treat Christians, especially those who are not like you, is a revelation of how we are treating Christ himself. Our love for those who are not like us, and it doesn't matter what that refers to, someone that we just don't get along with. Someone that comes from a different socioeconomic background. Someone from a different race, someone from a different vocation, on and on and on. How we spend time with them reflects our hearts and the fruit of the gospel. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, the promise of what is to come. Christ in you, a Gentile, the glorious gift of the gospel. Let's pray. God, we gather together, perhaps not all that unlike the church in Colossae thousands of years ago made up of people from different backgrounds, different preferences. And we marvel at the words, Christ in you, the hope of glory. That the glorious mystery of the gospel is not just for some of us here. It is not just for those who convert to Judaism but it is for all who would come and take of the waters without price. Help us to lean on this most important truth about us that Christ is in us, the hope of glory. Help us to do that this week in our identity and how we spend our times and what we do with our bodies and how we interact with one another. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.